Mr. Speaker, if this spending review's first priority was getting the country through coronavirus, and its second was stronger public services, then our final priority is to deliver our record investment plans in infrastructure. This is UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak just a few weeks ago presenting the 2020 spending review. Capital spending next year will total £100 billion, £27 billion more in real terms than last year. Our plans deliver the highest sustained level of public investment in more than 40 years. Once in a generation plans to deliver once in a generation returns for our country. The biggest ever investment in new roads, upgraded railways, new cycle lanes, and over 800 zero emission buses. Our capital plans will invest in the greener future, we promise, delivering the Prime Minister's 10-point plan for climate change. With a new national infrastructure strategy and a new UK infrastructure bank, the Chancellor showed the UK just how important infrastructure is going to be for our economic recovery. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. And in this episode, we have partnered with consultant Mott McDonald to explore why projects are costing more and taking longer than they should, and crucially, find out what we should do about it. We face a big programme and it's really important that we deliver that effectively. This is Day 11's. I'm Chair of Project 13. Until recently, I was also Chair of the Infrastructure Client Group. I'm an Executive Advisor with Mott McDonald, amongst a portfolio of things. And prior to that, I was Managing Director of the Anglian Water Alliances. Project 13 is not just a project. It's a movement. A movement to create a new delivery model for infrastructure projects. A delivery model that involves enterprises, a collection of companies working together to meet a set of outcomes that everyone in the enterprise is incentivised to meet. It is very different from historic practice, and we will find out how different later. But first, we need to understand why it's been so difficult for the industry to accurately predict what projects will cost and how long they're going to take. The business case is clear. If you look at industry performance, then construction productivity is, is poor and has been for a long period of time. The industry has sustainability issues in, in terms of partner sustainability as well as our sustainability performance. And we're just not set up to take the opportunity that digital transformation presents. So the infrastructure client group, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority and the Institution of Civil Engineers got together to investigate what the industry needed to do to deliver projects on time to budget. And it did this by asking University College London to examine projects that were getting it right and find out what these were doing that many other parts of the industry were not. Because unfortunately, the UK has a terrible track record when it comes to sticking to budget and schedules for infrastructure projects. In its paper, New Dimensions for Delivery, Mott MacDonald examined some of the world's biggest infrastructure projects. And reported that the average large rail project goes over budget by 45%. That's almost half the original cost again. Bridges and tunnels go over by 35%. And road projects by 20%. In fact, the larger and more complex a project is, the greater the risk of it running into difficulties. And it all starts right at the very beginning, with forecasts that are too often based on unknowns and uncertainty. It could be that sites aren't accessible for full investigation, 
or project teams need information from third parties that aren't able or willing to share it. This can be a feature of the competitive nature of bidding for work, as contractors and suppliers save their best innovations for tender stage, in the hope of beating the competition. Then there is optimism bias, where supporters or owners of projects project optimistic costings to encourage support for the scheme. And don't forget the projects where the requirements can't be fully defined at the start, leading to changes along the way. Despite all this, very often companies are awarded packages of works based on a fixed scope and win those packages based on the lowest cost. Leading to a confrontational and competitive environment where companies are incentivized to protect their own interests. Rather than find the best solution for the project or programme. Dale says that all of this is a feature of a transactional environment. Within a transactional environment, um, we, we do work in series, so it does tend to be owner, consultant, contractor, and then at some point the supply chain. You know, it is hierarchical. Our language is tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. With tier one companies like major contractors tending to directly interact with the project owner or its consultants, and the lower tiers, such as specialist suppliers, engaging with companies in higher tiers. So very often, you know, we're not engaging with the right parts of that overall ecosystem until we've already decided and defined what it is we want to do. So in terms of engagement, it's a very poor model. A tier three company, for example, may have an amazing component that can meet the project requirements at half the cost, but they don't have the opportunity to be innovative. So we're forming relationships around things that are already defined, which inevitably tends to you know, consolidate historic practice or previous solutions. This is where enterprise delivery comes in. In general terms, enterprise delivery is about bringing together the teams of people that you need in, in a more integrated, collaborative setup. We traditionally deliver in a very hierarchical, in-series arrangement, client, consultants, contractors. So enterprise is about bringing together those capabilities right at the outset. And, and, and that, to me, is very generally enterprise delivery. It means moving away from a transactional chain of companies appointed on a lowest cost basis to carry out defined work packages. Instead, organisations need to be orientated towards the same goals, collectively focusing on a set of outcomes. In an enterprise model, if we're engaging around these are the outcomes we want to deliver, then we open up all sorts of opportunities to do things differently. So we open up opportunities to, to deliver intelligent solutions, to you know, use innovation, it really importantly to deliver more sustainable solutions. So if you look at the track record of some of those alliances, they've done some amazing things on sustainability and carbon. It's because, you know, focusing on the outcomes rather than the scope allows them to do it in a much more sustainable, low carbon way. So it, it, engaging at outcome level and asking teams to deliver those outcomes rather than saying this is the solution, compete for it has been shown to be you know, a fantastic opportunity for innovation for different ways of working. As Dale has said already, this isn't an idealised, theoretic way of working. Project 13 is based on real projects that did what has seemed, at times, impossible for the built environment. Delivered major projects, on time and to budget. In fact, some of them were delivered early and under budget. You can read more about them in the Project 13 handbook, which we will link to in the show notes. So, so I think Project 13 is probably best captured in, in five key areas. Uh, outcomes, value, integration, ecosystem and, and digital transformation. Dale calls these the building blocks of the new project delivery approach. 
Um, if you look what they are, so outcomes is about uh, forming relationships and outcomes. It's about recognizing that investment in infrastructure is about delivering better outcomes for people, places, for customers, for, for communities. So, so secondly, it's about value. It's, it's not about lowest cost derived through some form of competition. It, it, it's about putting value both at the heart of the delivery process, but it's also about reward models that are value-based. The, the integration piece is about bringing together uh, organizations within integrated teams. It's about integrating processes and systems. So again, it's no longer about uh, a hierarchical in-series models. It, it's about integrated teams that get us from the need for better outcomes to a production system for effective delivery. And this leads on to a fourth point about creating a project ecosystem. Uh, the ecosystem is about uh, the whole ecosystem, understanding where the value is, uh, where the influence is, and then engaging with parts of that ecosystem in, in, in the right way. So it's, it's no longer about our hierarchical view of the supply chain and tier two, tier three, four. It's, it's, a, it's a network, it's an ecosystem, and we engage accordingly. And then digital transformation. Digital transformation that traditional ways of working are not geared up to embrace. And it's about creating the opportunity to, to just take the, the huge opportunity that is digital. And there are two parts to that. In the future, our solutions will be intelligent. We will integrate engineering and technology to deliver intelligent solutions. You know, not, not dumb assets, but uh, solutions that are intelligent and use information to, to optimize what we deliver. And, and it's about digital to build, it, it, it's both. And, and a really key part of Project 13 is about creating an environment where we, we can take the digital opportunity. People working in this way, like the exemplars Dale talked about earlier, are seeing the benefits firsthand. This is Liz Baldwin. Hi, my name's Liz Baldwin and I'm a Divisional Manager within Mott McDonald and I lead the Foundations and Geotechnics team, which is a team of about 140 strong geotechnical engineers, geologists and, and specialists. Liz and her team at Mott McDonald were part of an alliance of five organisations. ACOM, Colas Rail, Skanska, and the project owner, Network Rail. Their task was to upgrade London's Waterloo International train station, and as such, they were given a set of outcomes to achieve within a four-year window. They fell into three main categories. One was putting platforms one to four, so the lower end platforms at Waterloo station, into operation for a suburban 10-car trains, which they couldn't currently run on those platforms. It also involved refurbishing Waterloo International Terminal at the high-end platform so that rather than it being a terminal used more in a sort of the way an airport would use it as part of the old Eurotunnel to bring it into service as um, a, a, a railway that could run commuter trains. We also did work on the outlying approach station, so Vauxhall, for example, again to facilitate that increased capacity coming into Waterloo Station and the increased length of trains and the moving trains into the high-end platforms into International Terminal. And they did this by working together in the way that Dale just explained, not transactionally, but as an enterprise. An alliance is a form of enterprise. You know, it is about bringing together organisations to work in a more integrated, collaborative environment and, and therefore, you know, shares many of the principles of an enterprise and, and is a form of enterprise. Alliances of the past, and as a former water industry engineer, I've been in one myself, tended to bring together just main contract partners. Making this bigger, including the client and smaller suppliers, these quickly turn into enterprises. 
an ecosystem of enterprises. And it is this enterprise delivery thinking that is desperately needed to keep projects on track, creating collaboration, orienting everyone to the same outcomes, and inspiring the entire project ecosystem to be innovative. This is certainly what happened at Waterloo. So what an alliancing agreement does is that makes sure everybody is delivering on a best for project basis and that best for project will be best for the alliance and best for the individual participants. And if costs run over, then everybody will share the pain. And if costs or the project's delivered more efficiently, then everybody shares in the gain. And the, the, the contract, the alliancing agreement sets out what that looks like in reality. And the purpose of it really is to orientate everybody, all the alliance members, towards the one single goal. The goal is achieving the project outcomes, whatever it takes. At Waterloo, the team were able to do things differently, in a way that would never have been explored under traditional contracting arrangements, including spending £250,000 developing a new alternative design for the international terminal part of the project. So the original design had, for example, the way you access the main concourse from the international platforms was you had to go down a couple of levels. You then had to walk through what we call the orchestra pit in, in international terminal. And then you had to come up via escalators onto the main concourse or go via escalators into the London Underground. And that was just, it was difficult for passenger users just generally, but particularly difficult for those who had impaired mobility. And what we actually did was was reduce the amount of demolition that we were doing on the existing concourse. So where we opened up the orchestra pit, that was that was smaller. So there was more, if you like, floor space for pedestrians to move around at grade. And we then put in um, a footbridge that meant that all pedestrians just walked off the platforms, walked along on, over the footbridge, and they were in the main concourse of Waterloo Station. This alternative design had to be created in parallel to the existing one to make sure it didn't delay progress if Network Rail or other stakeholders such as train operators or station managers didn't like it. But with everyone working towards the same outcomes, the likelihood of this was low. So we had to go back and reconsult with all of the stakeholders and we'd been bringing them on the journey with us. So we'd had conversations with them already that we thought there was a better way of doing it. We'd, we'd consulted with them about what was important. And what we in essence did was arrange another meeting to go through that option selection process again with all the key stakeholders and formally presented the revised option. And it was, we have to get their buy-in to be able to take the option forward. And fortunately we did, because we'd been working with them collaboratively, we knew what was important to them. It was particularly important that the station manager, you know, liked the option that we were coming up with and that it was um, good. Also from a sort of oversight development strip retail. So we needed to make sure that it provided what, what they needed in terms of future retail international terminal. So we consulted, brought all those stakeholders together and actually they preferred that option to the one that had been taken forward originally. So actually we had a kind of unanimous support to then pursue the alternative option, which we then did. The new design with less underground construction and a new footbridge saved the project millions of pounds. We then switched design onto the new revised option, which saved 55 million pounds. This wasn't the only innovation that the team came up with. Another part of the project called for extensive groundworks to be carried out to support the revised track layout. And to do the revised track layout that came into International Terminal to open it for um, passenger trains, then we needed to join those viaducts and infill them so that we could change the track alignment. Now, 
What that meant uh, on the, the early stage design was installing 75 piles, new piles to support those sort of infill structures. But this work would mean a lot of disruption to the road traffic around Waterloo Station. It was a, you know, a significant amount of additional construction, but we didn't have any drawings or anything on the design of the original structures. So we couldn't prove that there was no need to support them through piles. So what we actually did was construct some piles identical to the ones that were in situ, and then we tested them to failure so that we could feed that back into the design. And rather than building new piles, we could take the forces through the existing structure and we managed to prove that we could do that just by, bu by building two or three piles and testing them to failure. This saved the Alliance and the project around £1.5 million. These innovations did mean there were significant changes to the original scope of work, but there were no claims, only savings, because of how the project was set up. It's based on a, a contract called an Integrated Project Alliancing Agreement, which is a very slim contract. It, it, none of the parties within the contract can make a claim against each other, so it's encouraging you all to work together collaboratively to deliver the outcomes for the project. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Let's play it again. None of the parties within the contract can make a claim against each other. This is really important. As Project 13 and many studies before it have reported, from the Latham Report to Egan and Rethinking Construction, confrontational contracting is one of the biggest pitfalls faced by major infrastructure projects. Under the transactional arrangement that Dale described, a company may agree to deliver a fixed item for a fixed cost, the lowest possible cost after all. That's how it won the contract. But as the project evolves, the project delivery team may find a better way or come across something unexpected, meaning that this fixed term is no longer fixed. The only way for the original firm to be reimbursed is to put in a claim for this variation. This sounds fair, I hear you say. Well, imagine there's hundreds of variations on every work package. It eats up time and money, and in the end, no one wins. Each party spends energy protecting its interests instead of spending it on making the project better. And if we're going to build back better... Then the industry has to deliver better. You know, infrastructure investment is clearly part of the economic recovery. And, and, and as we do that, you know, it's really important that that investment is focused on the better outcomes that, that we aim to deliver. So putting in place delivery models, which you know, bring those outcomes to the fore, which, which allow us to retain a focus on those outcomes, will aid the recovery um, in itself. The second point is, you know, productivity is a key driver. Uh, you know, that was part of the, the sort of original business case of Project 13. So putting in place these sort of models that improve productivity, allow us to get more value from the investment we make. Back to these outcome-focused enterprises then. And it is quite clear that it isn't just about doing the same with different contracting arrangements. For everyone involved, it means deeper collaboration with other organisations. Previously, consultants would either sit alongside the client or the contractor that hired them. But in an enterprise, they can become more of an integrator, making sure that everything from potential problems to the best ideas are being heard and shared. In terms of the nature of the relationship, you know, in an enterprise, owners are going to want partners that are aligned, that understand their business, that understand the outcomes they're trying to achieve, and, and you know, where the relationship is, is in itself different. And, and, you know, we should be looking to, aiming to, develop longer-term relationships with the owners that we work for, because that, that's what Project 13 requires. And you know, there'll be no guarantees about that. This will be long-term relationships subject to us continuing to add value 
and deliver performance. Uh, but but we should recognise the nature of the relationship is different, and we need to be you know be able to create and manage those relationships. It isn't just projects that benefit. Remember Liz Baldwin. Working on Wessex Capacity Alliance, both as the bid director for the bid and then going on to deliver the project as the um, Alliance director, was and probably will always be the highlight of my career. It's changed irrevocably how I approach projects and and certainly my behaviours have been changed um, permanently as a result of that experience. But I think it's made me better able to work work on projects, better able to collaborate with stakeholders, clients, contractors um, and want to work in a better way. And there's been some relationships built with the Alliance partners that have seen us well beyond the the life of the Alliance and and we still work together on projects now. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and Alex Conacher. Script editing by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And a special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps. Share us on LinkedIn or tweet us at Engineer Matters.